Well, I appreciate you guys. Those of you who've been with us for the long haul for the last four, I think we're in book number 17. So we've done the 12 minors, we've done Daniel, we've done John, uh, First Peter, and we'll do Second Peter. And uh, just as an additional bonus, we're probably going to look at, uh, uh, probably we are, we're going to look at Jude. Jude and Second Peter are very, very similar. They are written primarily to educate us and to help us in our uh, dealings with heresy and our and uh, false prophets and false teachers, very apropos to the day that we live in. Uh, as we spoke of earlier, Keith is presently talking about a current heresy of critical thinking and and to where that came from and how we're to combat it. We com- we're fighting social justices. Uh, uh, a lot of our Baptist brethren are struggling with how to deal with social justice, and uh, it's... Uh, very problematic in our day and age. We're struggling with some of the things that Peter struggled with, and uh, there's nothing new under the sun. What what Peter, uh, the heresies that Peter uh, demonstrated against and Paul demonstrated against and taught against, uh, we live in today. So we're going to look at a lot of these as we get through, as we go through this book of Second Peter. So turn with me to Second Peter. We may not get into it much today because an introduction is very important. Uh, so we'll understand the context of the book. We'll understand why it was written, when it was written, to whom it was written, as we typically do as we start a book. So uh, this book was written approximately 67, 68 A.D., as I have up on the board. We know that because Nero died in 68 A.D., and we know that Nero was one of the ones who gave the death sentence to Peter. And Peter, according to Jewish tradition, was hung upside down. Remember we talked about in First Peter, Jewish tradition says that, that Peter had to literally watch his own wife being crucified. And the words as documented by Josephus and others tell us that uh, he said to his dear wife, remember the Lord as she was crucified before Peter was. So, uh, uh, so Peter was in prison when he wrote this, probably in Rome. And so he wrote this as his imminent de- demise was approaching. And uh, he wrote this as a love letter to this, uh, to these congregates, to these, th- these pilgrims that have been dispersed from because of the persecution. And we'll look at that in a second. But we know that this is the last book he wrote and that we know that his death is intimate. Uh, if we we'll look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, uh, and Peter, as a dear apostle of Christ, uh, if we look at uh, verse 13, you just see the intimacy of this, as, as Paul was very intimate uh, when he was about to uh, depart this world in 2 Timothy. But we see this in verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, which of course is his literal body, to stir you up by reminding you that knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And we, of course, remember uh, from our study in the book of John that Jesus told uh, Peter about how he would die. If you'll look back as a refresher to John 21, uh, uh, as as Jesus is restoring Peter after his three denials of Christ, uh, as he intimately comes to Peter personally and specifically and, and uh, shows us what love is and repentance and forgiveness is, uh, he tells Peter in John, John chapter 21, verse uh, 
uh, 18, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to him, Peter, you follow me. Uh, and so we see Peter's imminent demise, as Jesus had told him about it. He's waiting for it. He's He is anticipating. And if we could just read and be in his shoes, he, he, he looked forward to being with his Savior and uh, to put off the tent. There was no fear or anxiety in his soul. He, know who, he knew who he believed in, just as Paul had said earlier, and uh, he was trusting him. So we see that's where it was written, when it was written, uh, to whom was it written. It was written to the beloved. Many times uh, John the Apostle is known as the Apostle of Love. I would put Peter in as a, as a close second. He's very uh, familiar with his uh, with the ones he writes to, and he calls them beloved. Look at uh, if you'll just look at uh, three one of this book, uh, you see who he's writing to. Uh, he says, "Beloved, to those whom I love, I write to you this second second epistle to stir up your pure mind." So he's writing to Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, who have dispersed from Jerusalem when all the persecutions hit. Part of God's plan is he supernaturally saves a church, saves his people, and then he disperses them by persecution as they go to all the points of the world and the gospel spreads like fire uh, It's from its humble beginnings at Pentecost. So we see that he calls them beloved and those who have pure minds. Look at verse 11 of, of the same chapter, chapter 3. Uh, uh, he tells them in verse 11, he said, uh, he's, he's talking about the end and the purification of the earth and the fire that's going to melt all the elements. He says in verse 11, he says, what manner of persons you ought to be holy in your conduct and godliness looking for the return of Christ. So he's, he's talking to a saved. He's talking to the elect of God. And then you see it again in verse 14 and 17. He just tells them, beloved, again, he calls them beloved, and he just warns them not to fall from grace. Uh, and we'll talk about what that means and what that does not mean as we get into this study. So it's written to the believers. And then if you remember, uh, just to give you a summation, if you'll go back to First Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, we see Peter addressing the same group of people. He calls them uh, the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he says that they are elect. And we've talked about what elect is. It's those who've been called, those who've been effectually called, summoned by the king. And this is an, it's an effectual, irresistible call. We talked about that in great detail. So he's addressing uh, his beloved people his congregates, those who he's ministered to. This is going to be critical when we get into the most, in my view, one of the most uh, misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. And we'll, we'll get into that. And most people just quote the end of it. They say, God's not willing that any should perish. That's all they quote of the verse. And we're going to talk about what that means and to whom he's speaking and whom he's speaking that he's not willing that they should perish. So it's very important you understand the context of Scripture and not just take a half a verse out of a, out of a Scripture and uh, 
and confuse people. So we'll look at that in great detail as we get into that, uh, as we look at this study. Uh, remember First Peter. Why was First Peter written? And I'm going to be very disappointed if you can't tell me. Why was First Peter written? Speak, Melanie. Persecution. It was written to help us deal with persecution and tribulation, and it taught us that the pathway through tribulation and through suffering was through obedience. And it emphasized the revealing of Christ, and it emphasized the purpose of suffering, and it taught us how to be triumphant through the persecutions of our lives. And so that was primary reason. It talked about hope, and Peter used seven foundational imperatives. This is going to be completely different. So on the board, we have the major themes of Second of, of Peter, and the major, major theme is dealing with false prophets and false teachers. And uh, in this, in chapter 2 specifically, and it's going to be scattered throughout the other two chapters, but uh, Peter's goal as the Holy Spirit boards him along uh, is to expose and to thwart and to defeat the false teachers of the church. And we're going to see that in chapter two. And, and, and he specifically talks about the false teachers. He talks about their doom. He talks about their depravity and he talks about their deception. So we get into chapter two. We're going to look at the, the final results and the consequences of false teachers. We're going to look at the motivations of the false teachers. We're going to look at their depravity, their covetousness and their licentiousness. In their, uh, uh, their false teaching, we're going to look at their deception, and that's going to help us see the culture in which we live, and we're going to look at some of the similar uh, methodologies of the false teachers of Peter's day, and we'll look at the similar methodologies of today's false teachers. Lots of similarities with covetousness and licentiousness and just wickedness and just taking scripture and turning it for their uh, own, own hearts and hearts uh, and for their uh, the, the motivations of their heart. And the beauty of this book, and you know the Holy Spirit wrote it, is because uh, it doesn't give a specific heresy, but it, the, the heresy is, is more general, but, but it applies to all dispensations. So 2,000 years ago, it applied Peter's day, and 2,000 years ago, it applies to our day. And so all of these principles of false teachers is going to be applicable to us. And so the Spirit uh, interprets it brilliantly and so that it's generic. We can all understand it. We can all relate to it. And, uh, and so it's going to give us very good application for how to deal with them today. And so that's going to be the number one theme of this book, and that's going to be false teaching, and that will primarily be in chapter 2. The second is going to be knowledge. Knowledge, the word knowledge, a form of it, knowing, uh, knowledge, know, is 16 times mentioned in this book, in this book. And it is a secondary theme of this book. And the if you don't get anything from today, the solution to false doctrine is knowing God's Word. 
Okay, it was written so that we're not going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine like the like the waves, but we need to be sound. So when we're approached with critical race theory and we're and we're uh, approached by social justice people who mean well and who who teach us that we're going to have to have this reaction to what's going on in our culture, we will know be able to refute it biblically. When we're approached by climate changers, when we're close, when we're approached by whatever else is out there, the Word of God has a explanation for it, and it gives us sound doctrine, and our purpose, one of the purposes while we're on this planet, we're to be salt and light, we're to preserve the truth of this Word. One of the primary functions of an elder is to make sure we are in sound doctrine and teaching in this church so we're not confused. Because that's one of the the methods of the devil we talked about last week. Uh, He wants to deceive us, and he wants to confuse us, and he wants to bring doubt in our minds, and he wants to crush faith within us. So uh, my primary job, Terry's and and Keith's and Lee's and David, is to refute error, to keep us sound doctrinally. So we're going to have a reason for the hope within us, right? So that is uh, one of the things we're going to talk about in this book. Just a few verses uh, to show this. Look at the one, two. <clears throat> As we look at some of these verses, they're going to help us through uh, understanding that knowledge is a, is a secondary theme in this book as far as the number of uh, uh, verses that it's that it, that it specific to it. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. That's the full and the complete and the real knowledge of God. There's the word knowledge. Verse 3 tells us, His divine power is given to us all things that return to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. So we see that verse. Verse 5, we see... Uh, we talk, we're going to talk about Christian growth here in a bit. It says, for this very reason, give all of our diligence, which is our very best, not secondhand effort. We add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge. And then in verse 6, knowledge is foundational to self-control. And we'll get into all these things as we go through this book. Verse 8 Uh, These things are yours and abound. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20, uh, we understand that knowing this first, and that word is just a a, a branch of the word knowledge, knowing. We're going to talk about the private interpretation of Scripture. And there's another verse that is very, very misunderstood, how we can understand Scripture and uh, our ability to interpret it. Uh, and we'll look at hermeneutics and some different things that are going to help us with that. So there's another verse, 220, another verse that is going to talk about knowledge uh, when it says, uh, for, talking about the false teachers, for after they, uh, for, for if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, we're going to look at, at the false prophets and, uh, their misuse of knowledge, and uh, they have a head knowledge, and we'll look at the difference between head knowledge and and a God-given, faith-given, regenerated faith. Uh, We'll look at the difference between the two and and how we know the difference between the two. Uh, So there's another verse, chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, uh, we're going to talk about one of the heresies that the Christ is not going to return 
and that there's no second coming of Christ. We'll get into that, but that's 3.3.3.17 says, again, it says, Beware lest you fall, uh, beloved, since you know this beforehand. So he's talking about uh, the knowledge that we have in Christ and because of Christ. And then verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So knowledge, knowing is very important, and that's going to be critical that we have a thorough grasp of God and his word uh, so we are not uh, deceived. So uh, number two thing would be knowledge. Third one, uh, and this is just so daring to me, uh, Peter, uh, it's this theme of reminding. Peter's dying. Peter uh, is in prison, and he knows that he's about to die. And Peter is so impressed by God's word and by his spirit that he loves his people, and he just wants to remind them. Why do we have to remind each other over and over and over again? Because why? We forget. And so Peter, as his dying faithfulness, to Christ, as Christ said, to feed my lambs, the last thing he does, he wants to remind them of the precious promises in the book, the precious promises that come from faith in Christ. He reminds us of who Christ is, that he's God and that he's Savior, and he just wants to encourage his people. And we see that uh, in many, 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 many verses. But let me just uh, look at a couple of these uh uh, verse chapter three, verse one, I write to you to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you will be mindful of the words spoken by the prophets. So he is encouraging this knowledge theme. He's encouraging, reminding them of the significance of the word, preeminence of the word. And so he reminds them and he tells us that it's not a burden for him to remind us. He loves to do it. It's his, it's his heart to do it. And he wants his, look at chapter uh, one, verse 12. For this reason, I'm not going to be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truths. We just talked about that. Yes, it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up. But we need to be stirred up because the world beats us down. When you look at that tube and when you look at the world system and how it is collapsing on itself, we need to be stirred up by reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of this book, who God is, his character, because we get sucked in by the world system. And we become in, I talk to so many people that are disillusioned and are in despair and are are just full of anxiety and fret because they are just genuinely perplexed at this world. And it's very obvious to anyone who understands that this is predicted in Scripture. And it was given to us so that when these days come and they are here, that we'd be encouraged and stirred up. And we're going to be motivated to share Christ because he's the only hope we have. So, uh, so that's why this book is written, and I hope it will encourage us uh, that we need to be reminded of the promises. Just to give you a little boost, what are the promises? Remember we talked about this in First Peter, and I'm going to remind you because obviously you guys don't remember what we just talked about. I say this in love. 
because it's all part of whom we are. We remember a song we heard 50 years ago, but we can't remember Scripture, and that's just the way our nature is. Isn't it an amazing thing? I want to remind you of the inheritance we have. It is reserved in heaven for you and me, and it will not fade away. And I'm making everybody vibrate, and I shouldn't hit this table. <laughs> I was warned about that. This is reserved in us. It is. It is will not fade away. It is incorruptible, and it is in store for us. It is reserved for us, and that is we are joint heirs with Christ, friends. Be encouraged by that. I hope you're stirred up by that. Uh, that God's Spirit would just remind you we have a great future glory ahead of us. And these, as Paul said, this current suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to come hereafter, right? So we, we need to be encouraged by that. We're all going to look at the uh, next theme we're going to see is godly character and how to develop it. It is a process. This is what we call progressive sanctification. Uh, God doesn't, in his knowledge and his sovereignty over us, he doesn't zap us like a microwave oven and we're automatically fully mature in faith and we have progressed. And so the next step is glorification. No, he works within each one of us. He uses each one of our each each. Uh, part of us, every one of us is different. We are all uh, able to comprehend differently. He progresses us each differently, and he uses different means to progress each one of us. Some of us are so stubborn and so hard-headed. He has to get our attention in more pronounced ways than others that are more naturally submissive. I am the chief of these, uh, those that is stubborn and hard-headed, and, and he has had to use Many, many difficult means, and he's chastened me many times in life, but that's part of his love for me and the process for me. Some of you have different stories, uh, but uh, the development of character is a process. We cooperate with God in the process, not in the salvation, but we cooperate in the process. And so we have to work out the salvation. We have to make sure of our calling and our election. And we have to work. And we have to participate. And we have to grind it out day by day, praying in the Word, uh, in the Spirit, obedient as we learn what it means to be Christ-like. And so we see this uh, explained. If you look at First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5. You have to be diligent at this. You have to be at your very best. You have to consider this your calling in life, and it is. But it says, add to your faith, which is a gift of God. We, but we have to believe. And then to believing, we add virtue. To virtue, we add knowledge. To knowledge brings self-control. Self-control brings perseverance. Perseverance brings godliness. Godliness brings kindness. And kindness brings us to where we need to be, agape love of Christ, unconditional love for each other and for him. And that's going to be processing. And it's a process in each one of us. And uh, as the old song goes, I, I'm not the way I used to be. Uh, but thank God that he is progressing me on. And that's that's his work in us. And uh uh, so we see that it's the development of Christian character. The next one that we see that's very prevalent is as God is progressing us and as we fight with the heresies of this world and the culture of this world, we can fully anticipate 
Keith talked about this in Psalm 37, not to be overly anxious and fret. One of the reasons the psalmist gave us not to fret is because we know the end of the wicked. And so we know that present day when we're perplexed and we think, why do the right, the, the, the wicked prosper? Why isn't their life as difficult as ours? Why don't they seem to go through the same struggles we do? They got money, they got, and it doesn't seem like God is going to avenge them, but we understand from scripture and we understand specifically in this book that God is going to judge the wicked. And there is a day of vengeance and there is a day of judgment and, and he will be uh, glorified when his justice is fulfilled with the righteous as it already is in Christ, but in the, in the, in the wicked. And we see that in chapter three. And we're going to see that anticipation, uh, specifically in chapter three and uh, look at many verses. We'll look at all the examples. Uh, but look at chapter 3, verse 7. The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition or the destruction of ungodly men. So we see that, that Peter's going to encourage us. Verse 10, the day of the Lord is going to come, and it's going to come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly, and it's going to come with violence, and it's going to come with righteous indignation. The heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements are going to burn up with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We're going to take that literally as we get into this, but we anticipate that God is faithful to who he is, He's not lying to us. He's immutable in his character, and he will avenge himself on the wicked. That's his job. We are to love men and to pray for men, uh, but God is going to finally and ultimately uh, glorify himself as he avenges the wicked. And then we see the precious promises as his last. I think it's very important. Uh, You look at chapter 1, verse 6. He says, we have exceeding and precious promises, and we're going to look at these promises in this book, and we're going to look at them in First Peter, and then we're going to look at some others. So that is the themes of this book. Uh, I think as we go through this book, it may take us a while, but that's okay. This book is structured similarly, similarly to First uh, Peter. Uh, in that it has foundational imperatives in it. Remember, we had seven in First Peter. Uh, this one has four foundational imperatives. Do I even have that on the board? Yeah, four foundational imperatives. Uh, I'm not going to teach it with these foundational imperatives because it just doesn't uh, lend itself to that because of chapter 2 in the false prophets. So I'm just going to, as I get to each one, we'll, we'll talk about that doctrine and that command. But you see these imperatives, and they're going to be found in, in chapter 1, verse 10. A lot of people uh, in, the early, uh, in the early canonization of Scripture denied that Peter was the uh, author of Second Peter because it was different than First Peter. Uh, but we're going to see that they're very similar in some of the terminologies and some of his preaching and acts. We're going to see... Uh, irrefutable that he's the author of this book. But look at 110. Therefore, remember we looked at that word. We understand what that word means, and this is an imperative. Be more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Talking about the progress of sanctification, about virtue and knowledge and diligence and 
we'll talk about all this. That's the first imperative, 110, and the command is to make sure of your calling and election. And we'll talk about that in great detail. Uh, verse Chapter 3, verse 11, uh, we see the second imperative. And he says, since all these things are going to be dissolved, he says, you ought to be holy persons and you ought to live faithfully in your conduct and you need to be godly. And we'll look at all of that. Uh, so that's imperative number two, three, eleven. The second two, the second, the third and the fourth imperatives are in chapter three. We see uh, three, fourteen. We see the third imperative which is beloved, therefore beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And we're going to talk about what peace is, what it isn't, that the peace is found in Christ through the shed blood of his Savior, of his Son, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, <coughs> the fourth imperative is verse 17, chapter 3. Uh, and this is actually the reason why he wrote this letter. It's unusual that an imperative is actually the reason uh, for why this book is re written, but this is why the book is written. Chapter 3, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. So this is written uh, so we would understand false teachings, and, and it is written so that we would be aware of it and that we wouldn't be drawn into it and sucked into the false doctrine. And so that's why uh, the book is written. Everybody sort of get where we are so far? Now, this is going to be something that's going to be a little more ambiguous. Uh, I wanted to bring it up today as a, uh, as a, uh, as we start this book. Uh, and this is this uh, heresy of Gnosticism. The word is uh, G-N-O-S, which is Greek for knowledge. And then uh, Gnosticism is a system of belief. It is a very confusing one, and it's uh, it's... I read many sources on this and just tried to put my head around this. And I didn't write these on the board, so I just want to give these to you. And this is going to be a heresy that really started uh, in Peter's day. John fought this heresy. Paul fought this heresy. It reared its ugly head early on, about 50, 60 A.D. It's really more prevalent in the second and third centuries, Christianity, in the hundreds and the two hundreds. Uh, but there's a lot of involved with Gnosticism. Uh, and uh, remember the, the culture that these apostles are writing. So they're writing to Greeks who are very knowledgeable people. Uh, you remember Paul on Mars here said, you Bereans, uh, you know, you always want new things and you're always looking for, you're very curious about learning and so uh, they're writing in this era where knowledge is just exploding. Uh, and so they really, uh, one of the things that they fought was this Gnosticism, which is a combination of truth. Then it's a combination of mysticism. It's a combination of, of Christ. And it's a combination of, uh, of mysticism. And it's a blending. Remember the Greeks had all these gods and these gods were God and they were men and they were Zeus and Apollo. And you know, all the, the constellations were, you know, based upon the Greeks mythology and their, and their gods. And, uh, so Gnosticism is just a combination of, of all these religions, uh, in a convoluted mixture. 
and it was confusing to people, and it is today. And, and some of these same things are prevalent today. Scripture said there's nothing new under the sun. So the same lie of deception that Satan caught Eve with is so prevalent through all the, the Babylonianism and all the different religions of the world and, and prevalent today. But Gnosticism, uh, like I said, and, and just give you a few points if you're writing these down, really taught, it's a collection of religious ideas, and it emphasized spiritual knowledge over orthodoxy. So it's really consumed with gaining knowledge, reading, just it's, it's a philosophy. It's tied into uh, what you as a, it's, it's humanism, it's secularism, it's everything. And it's just, it, it emphasizes knowledge and learning new things and to the over-orthodoxy and over-teachings that are scriptural. It sounds like the secret. Did you ever see that? The secret? That book or the Oprah? I haven't. Oh, you are. This is it. And that's a good thing y'all did. That's, that's what this is. But it is combined in everything. It is combined. It is, it is, it is hobbled together as I thought about this. It is very prevalent in masonry. It is very prevalent in uh, in uh, in Mormonism. It is very prevalent in um, what a Muslim is, Shintoism, communism, Marxism. Uh, you know, as we're learning, uh, this BLM movement is not uh, about black people. It is about destroying the family in the word of God and is a Marxist driven teaching and a theology and there is a mixture of occultism in it and one of the founders initially if you look at her on video you see her she's practicing uh, demonic convergence and talking to demons and and all of this is is all part of the heresy of Gnosticism, that's the big bro umbrella. But we're in this today, uh, in this, in, uh, in, uh, in all this new age movement. All of this is a combination of this. We could call it Gnosticism. Uh, it's not new, but we got to fight it. We got to know what it is. What Keith is talking about critical thinking is this, this misnomer that, that we're all inherently racist and, and, uh, and this misnomer that our nation was founded on racism and blah, blah, blah. But I know Chris is, I mean, Chris, just looked at Chris. I know Keith is doing an excellent job with that. And, and I would, uh, really recommend you look at his teaching, uh, uh, over the internet as he's recording all this, but nothing's new, but it's all just a hodgepodge. And, uh, uh, so we see that, uh, social justice, many Baptists are just, are becoming guilty and white guilt and all these things and, and what is the purpose of Christianity and, and it just, it's confusing and we're going to be looking at these things. Uh, and so what it is, it, what Gnosticism says is, is that it, it views our bodies, the material world is, is intrinsically evil. Okay. And, uh, and what they do is they say there's a supreme God, uh, 
and then he's the hidden God, and then there's a malevolent lesser God, and these two gods are fighting, and it's 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 mind-numbingly corrupt. But God, the malevolent God, is is the Old Testament Yahweh. And the spiritual God is Jesus, and there is a conflict between the two of them, and uh, and it's called the demurge, D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E, and it's the difference between the the distinction between the supreme hidden God and the malevolent lesser God, which is the Old Testament Yahweh, and uh, and so uh, he's the one created the material universe, and the material universe is inherently evil. And it teaches that salvation is earned, get this, salvation is earned through secret knowledge. If you know anything about Masons, and I hope you aren't one, uh, my grandfather was high up in the rank of, of Masonry, and they really believed in and I do this funny when I'm making sales calls. I go in the guy's office and I see, if I see masonry symbols and the architectural symbols, I know what they think because they think they have a special knowledge and they think that they have the answer to every problem. So when I go into Mason's office, I'll say, I'll look around and I'll say, well, tell me about this. Tell me about that. What do you understand that? And they just talk and talk and you see their heads get big and their egos. And by the end of the day, it's like, you are a, do you want to be a Mason? And, and it's just incredible how they think. And uh, my grandfather, he was a pastor, a lay pastor. But he was also a mason. He later repented of it and turned from it. But uh, it's an amazing. Uh, they have these oaths and they these fearsome commitments and a special. I mean, it's it's a trip to know what goes on within masonry. If you Albert Pike was a 33rd degree mason, you ought to read his book. Uh, but uh, it's a secret society, uh, and uh, uh, it is a part of all this special knowledge gobbledygook that people are inflamed in their egos and they think that they have this special revelation. And uh, so that's what this Gnosticism is. It's salvation is earned through a special form of secret knowledge. Uh, and then there's dualism. I could get into all this, but I don't want to, I can feel your eyes rolling in your head. But uh, Spock talks about inferior and superior Christians. A inferior Christian uh, is, uh, has to practice asceticism. That means you need to, because your body is intrinsically evil, if you're an inferior Christian, you're gonna be an ascetic. You gotta separate yourself from the world, like Martin Luther did. He went into the, he went into his own, uh, uh, tower, metaphorically speaking, and he just, uh, he just got away from the world, and uh, he was an ascetic. He just separated himself from the world. He focused on the word and prayer, and guess what he found out? The problem was inward, and it's a heart issue. So it don't matter how far you separate yourself from the world, an ascetic will never come to faith and, and real salvation because uh, you can't become a Christian because of superior knowledge and because you separate. And then the the superior Christians, they are given to licentiousness because the body is is evil intrinsically. If I'm a superior Christian, I can do whatever I want to do. And so we're going to see in here licentiousness. These false teachers 
were covetous for money and greed, and they believed they could live how they wanted to. And there's a lordship salvation issue here. Well, I can be a Christian, but I can still be covetous. I can still love money. I can still say name it, claim it. I can still prosperity gospel. All of this is a form of, if you really boil it down to the to the origin of all this, it's a false view of God, who He is, what godliness is, how you how you obtain salvation, and it's a it's just a horrendous mixture. And so, is that sort of a, a tip of the iceberg about Gnosticism? Yes, ma'am. Where do they learn it? I think they learn it from culture. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, that, I halfway joked about TBN, if you want to talk about false teachers. Now, they don't think I'm a Gnostic. They don't think to themselves. Uh, uh, they wouldn't outwardly admit that what they are actually saying is what they're saying. They believe and they are deceived. They have a special calling. If uh, you've heard them speak. I mean, and they they wouldn't even know that's what they are. That's all part of the deception of it. This name it, claim it, and all this uh, TBN guys and this this, this uh, declare I declare my faith and do all this. That's all part of this heresy that's been going on for since the beginning. And where do they learn it? They learn it because they don't properly hear the word of God. They've heard it. A lot of these guys are second and third generation pastors that have been taught it. If you if you look at just one I'll name, his daddy was the same way. Joel Olstein's daddy was the same way. And you see a lot of these people are uh, just a function of what they've been taught over the years. There are others I could name, and I'm going to try to hold my breath. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> The Copelands, you know, there you go. But all of these people, uh, the, the Carrera, Carrillos and whatever all these guys are, uh, they are all deceived. They're false prophets. They're consumed with greed and love of money and things. And we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, expose them. Uh, maybe not by name, but we're gonna expose, uh, what they say and we're gonna see the depravity of them in chapter two. So it sort of give you a glimpse. Uh, and I, I love, I hate, but uh, what they say is this spiritual, this knowledge, this spiritual superiority is going to spark the divine in me. And so you see the Oprahs of the world who actually believe in the, in the Tom Cruises of the world. They believe they are actually godlike. They do. They think they are superior to you and to I. And that's all part of this deception uh, of heresy of this world. And so if you listen to them for five minutes, it comes across very, you know, in the books they recommend. I, you know, <coughs> but this is what we are dealing with. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, as we look at this book. So everybody understand that? And so within this uh, Gnosticism, there are going to be several corollary heresies that are going to relate to this. They deny the Lord. We're going to talk about this. They deny that he is the master and God and the Savior. And so in various forms, uh, MacArthur fought this in the 80s about lordship salvation, right? 
He can be your He can be your Savior, but He doesn't have to be your Lord. And we went through this for years within the Baptist denomination. Some of you remember that. He's fought that. He's written books about that. But there is a great distinction, and we need to understand He's not only our Savior, but He's Lord. He's our Master, and we are to be in subjection to Him. It's not this half-hearted, uh, well, I believe these things, but that doesn't lead to obedience and faithfulness. That's a heresy. It's been going on for years uh, in the church, and I could name denominations. I will. Doggone it. Uh, virgin birth, the denial of the virgin birth. Very prevalent. Uh, if you deny the virgin birth, then you deny that he's God. And that is done within denominations, if you can believe it. Uh, the deity of Christ is one that we fight even now. Muslims deny the deity of Christ. He's just a prophet. Mormons deny the deity of Christ. He's just a prophet. Jehovah's Witness, they will fight you to the death that Jesus didn't die on the cross. And uh, I've had that conversation with them in my front yard in a parked car. Uh, bodily resurrection, uh, they do not teach that that's true. Uh, that he didn't die. Part of Gnosticism says that Jesus uh, was a divine spirit. He wasn't really a human being. And some even teach that uh, the spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, but it departed at his crucifixion, before his crucifixion. And uh, that is all part of this heresy uh, that, that, that Peter fought, that Paul fought, that John the Apostle fought, and we fight. And you may not be aware of it, but it's it's good to know your enemy, the way they think, the verses they're going to bring. Uh, there's many that deny the second coming. I know Christian people who don't know that, 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 that they're not sure about it. I'm not talking about the rapture, but I'm just talking about the second coming. Uh, and so that's all part of this. And so... Uh, and so uh, Everybody sort of get where we're going with this false teaching. Uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and start this bad boy book. We're going to look at Second Peter, and we're going to look at the salutation. It's not on the board. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but there's two critical things I want you to see in the salutation. So look at Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 1. How, how about that? Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is such a perfect balance of who Peter as an apostle viewed himself to be, and as we as leaders in the church, and we as brothers and sisters in the church, this is the balanced viewpoint that we are to have with each other. The first word is bondservant. That word is doulos. One of the things that inspired me about Terry's... uh, 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 video about uh, his appreciation for 30 years of service here. I wish he was here. I'll tell him. He said, Mar- he said, Regine and I are servants. No, he did not say that word. He said, Regine and I are slaves. He said that very explicitly. The word doulos is D-O-U-L-O-S. We've done it in our home group when we did Philippians, doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. The Greek word is slave. MacArthur wrote a book about it called Slave. 124 times Scripture uses the word 
It's the most pronounced and definitive word for who we are as Christians. We're slaves. It is a word that's usually translated servant because they take the Latin word because there's a stigma to slavery and people don't want to say, oh my gosh, you're a slave. Why would you want to be a Christian if you're a slave? But a slave is what we are. Peter says, I'm a doulos. I'm a slave. And slaves, we understand from, from history. We understand from culture. We understand from what the scripture says that slaves are owned. We are bought with the precious blood of Jesus and we are not our own. So if you are in Christ, you are literally a bought person by the blood. Your life is not your own. A slave had no rights. A slave had no freedoms. And I'll get into that in a second. A slave had no autonomy. A slave was a property of another. A slave was to be absolutely submissive to his master and and exhibit unconditional obedience. And a slave was totally dependent on his master. Some of those sounds like positive. Some of those sound like really, but they are. We do not have, we are not autonomous. We are totally dependent on God and we are totally dependent on each other. So in that slave, in that sense, in that sense, we are slaves. We are to be absolutely submissive to Christ and we are to be unconditional in our obedience to Him. He says it, we do it. We say yes, sir, and we do it. That's our calling as being slaves. We don't have the right to do what we want to do on our own agenda, on our own time. So we are, in that sense, a slaves. We're not hired. We're not autonomous like, like servants are. We don't have specific rights, but we are in Christ, and that is immeasurable in a right in itself. We're joint heirs. So when you think of, I don't have any rights, that's a good thing because it's best for you, right? It's We are not autonomous, but we are dependent on him. And we are, and Paul said we're slaves of righteousness in Romans 6, 17 and 18. So, uh, so Peter says, I'm a doulos. That shows humility. Remember last in the book we remembered, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he will raise you in position in due season. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Talked about humility. So Peter is expressing humility. We are, none of us are special Christians. We are all in faith in Christ, and there's no one who is, has special revelation and above others. We are one in Christ. There's no male or female, Jew, Gentile. We're one in Christ, right? So Peter is saying, I'm a doulos. He's expressing humility. He's saying there are no, no such thing as second-class citizens. And we are all bought by Christ's blood. Everybody understand that? So he is acknowledging uh, the balance in the Christian life and our viewpoint of who we are in Christ. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We're not, locked, we're not to look down our nose at other people and say, he really hasn't quite arrived like I have yet. Because we need to take heed because we're going to fall the next day if you got that attitude, right? So that's what he says. And then secondly, you know, my favorite word is balance. He says, I'm a doulos, but I'm also an apostle. 
Okay. I have been uniquely called. I'm an eyewitness of Christ and his majesty. I saw the transfiguration myself personally. I have suffered with Christ. I have been given this gift of apostleship. I start churches. I'm an emissary of Christ. I've been, I have been revealed the word by the Holy Spirit of God. So although I am a doulos, I'm also an apostle. So he's acknowledging this balance that exists in his mind and in his role as a foundation or pillar of the church. So he says, he says, I'm not only am I a doulos, but I'm an apostle. And then he says, to those, this is who he's writing to, this is to us, to those who have obtained like precious faith. That word obtained is the Greek word lanchano, L-A-N-C-H-A-N-O. And that word means that we have been chosen by lot. We have been received by the divine will of God. It is Romans 9.16. So when Peter says, I'm an apostle, I'm a slave, I'm writing to you who are also fellow slaves. I'm writing to all of you because all of us have obtained our salvation by call, by the work of grace in our hearts. And it says in Romans 9.16, and uh, many of you know this verse, uh, but I'm going to read it in verbatim so that I don't botch one word of it. This is what it means that we've obtained a like faith. Uh, this is what this verse means. Look at 916 of Romans. It says, it is not of him who wills, it is not of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. It is, it is at Romans 916. So it is not of us who will and not of us who runs, but it is God who shows us mercy. That's what it means we've obtained it. It's a passive work that we are a recipient of. It is not a work in which we ourselves have obtained salvation in that sense, but we have been a recipient of it. One of Keith's favorite psalms, he preached about it uh Probably been two years ago now, but you know, days go by so fast when you get old. But Psalm 16, this is what it means to obtain, and this is what this verse literally means, that we've been chosen by lot. Look at Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6. Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. So Peter understood, as we should understand, that salvation is a work of God, okay? And it, we are the passive recipients of it, and it is not because of our wills. It is not because of our works. We didn't pursue God. He pursued us. He called us. He elected us, and so we have been the recipients of his grace. We have obtained this. It emphasizes that salvation wasn't attained by personal effort. It wasn't, it wasn't attained by our skill or our worthiness, but it procurely, it, we, it was procured from God's grace by virtue of Christ's righteousness, not ours. So Peter says, as he opens this great book, I want you to know as we go through these heresies 
what causes you to differ is you've obtained faith by Christ in Christ. And you didn't come to this in your own ability. You're not able to reject this by your own ability, discern this by your own ability, but it's God's spirit and it's God's grace. Like precious faith, isotomos. Uh, we know what iso means. Uh, in the, in the great, uh, kenosis of Jesus when he humbled himself in Philippians 2, he said he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. That's the same word, iso. And so when it says we have an iso precious faith, like precious faith, all the faith is from God and it's equally precious to an apostle as it is to a doulos, as it is to you and as to me. And it's obtained and it's from God. It's equally precious to each one of us. All Christians possess the same precious faith, and that faith is a gift from God, right? And it is a work of the Spirit in our hearts, and so it is the power to believe. And it is something that we have to believe, but it is a gift from God. As the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and our minds, He gives us faith to actually come to Christ. It's the secondary cause of salvation. It's not the primary cause, that's grace, but it's through faith. So the secondary cause of faith is a gift, and it is our ability to apprehend Christ and come to him, and it's a gift, not by works of righteousness, okay? And it is, for we saved by faith, grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. Faith is not something you conjured up in your mind. It is a gift from God, and Christ is the author and the giver of it, right? And it's apprehended as we read the word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So all these things come together. Christ authorizes it. He instigates it. He creates it in us. It's faith. We apprehend God. And that's how we come to Christ. And then it's his righteousness. It says, like precious faith, by the righteousness of our God and Savior. Notice that Jesus is not only our Savior, he's God. Over and over in Scripture, Scripture tells us that Jesus is God and he's our Savior. We're going to use this later as we get into the heresies that Jesus isn't deity. Okay? He is. And we're going to get into this as we look at these heresies of, of, of this book. I'm going to close there. Next week, we're going to talk about the... Uh, what knowledge is and uh, the full knowledge of Christ and the Holy Spirit has given us all that we need, uh, uh, all the spiritual riches that we have, and then we're going to look at progress in the faith, and we're going to look at virtue and knowledge and all these things. Uh, any comments or questions? Uh, appreciate you guys. And uh, anything to offer or add? I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to let you go, and we'll see you next time. Father, thank you for salvation that has been given to us in Christ. Thank you for that we are your slaves. Thank you that we've been bought by your precious blood. Give us wisdom not to be confused by the heresies of this world. Help us not to be deceived, led astray. Help us to be faithful to what your word reveals and who you are. And help us to be true to your word, not to be led astray by false teachers, false prophets who promise things, but the end of them is their destruction. 
Help us to be faithful and true, salt and light. And we know that you've promised that you will hold on to your people and you will keep us ultimately from straying away. We thank you for these truths and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.